if we just isolate ourselves fully, then we do put ourselves at a higher risk of psychosis. And if you're not sleeping at all, then your brain's definitely not going to be working as well. Um, obviously, it would potentially lead to hallucinations if you weren't getting enough sleep at all. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of the Depression Files podcast. For over two and a half years, I've been creating and publishing this show every other Sunday. Of course, there is a cost to producing a podcast, from paying the podcast hosting site to the equipment to a significant amount of my own personal time. Because of this, I've decided to create a Patreon page and hope that you'll consider contributing so that I can continue the important work of allowing men to share their stories. Please check it out at patreon.com slash the depression files. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the depression files. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. I'm your host, Al Levin. I'm excited. Today on the line we have Dr. Damon Ashworth. Dr. Damon Ashworth is a clinical psychologist who completed a doctoral degree in clinical psychology at Monash University and a Bachelor of Behavioral Sciences and a Bachelor of Psychological Science with honors at La Trobe University. Dr. Ashworth is considered an expert in the field of sleep and treatments for insomnia. His doctoral research was a randomized clinical trial that significantly reduced insomnia and depression severity of participants across only four sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. These promising findings were published in the Journal of Counseling Psychology and were, in the, were the first in the world to show that CBTI can significantly improve both mood and sleep in individuals who have previously failed to progress through antidepressant treatment. Dr. Ashworth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hey, I'm really excited to, to have you on the show to talk about insomnia, um, its connection to depression, and, uh, and how all about CBTI and, and how it can be utilized to support one with depression. I think the, the best way for us to start would probably be just a few definitions. For those listeners who may not know, can you just explain, first of all, CBT, just cognitive behavioral therapy, the basis behind that? Sure. Yeah. CBT was developed by Aaron Beck, I believe. And it really is just looking at how people think about things and how people choose to behave with things and seeing if we can challenge those or change those in some way so that somebody doesn't keep falling into the same traps as much and then they can feel a lot better. Right. So it's it's taking those thoughts that they have. And, you know, I I had two major bouts of depression and I can tell you, like, my negative thinking just started getting rampant. And it's really telling 
a client. You you need to stop those negative thoughts and uh, change them. I wouldn't say stop, but definitely change them. Yes. Okay. So, but to kind of catch them and modify them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And and I I believe too part of the belief is that you know we create these thoughts we make these thoughts and and we could make negative thoughts which then impact how we behave so if we perpetually create negative thoughts from things that happen to us or around us then we start acting in a way based upon those negative thoughts and if we are able to change those thoughts into positive thoughts that we would then act differently. Yeah. Is that I, I think the trickiest part with thoughts is that initially where they come from, we're not entirely sure. They just pop up. So I don't think we have too much control on what we initially think, but we do have a bit of control in how we think about our thoughts that initially pop up. So our secondary thinking processes, we've got much more control over that. Right, right. So I usually give a really basic example, and I'm curious if you can respond to it because maybe I'm off base here. But I know sometimes like even just walking down the hallway at work, I work in a school and if I say hi to somebody and they ignore me, I could instantly think like, oh, shoot, they're, they're really pissed at me. I, I remember I didn't turn something in to them the other day or whatever. And I can start making up this story about how this person is mad at me. Or I could think, yeah, oh, boy, that person is probably really busy or might not have even heard me and I'll catch up with them later and check in. Yeah, exactly. So I think that initial thought of, oh, no, that person didn't talk to me and they must be mad at me. We, we can't control where that pops up from. But if we have that thought, we can say, hang on, you know, Joe and I are normally fine. He might be in a bad mood. Let's look at some other possibilities and try to tell myself those. And if that makes me feel a little bit less down or, or less bad, then that's a really positive thing. Right, right. Yeah, I know when when I was going through one of my two major bouts of depression, um, Anything that anybody said to me around work or questioned anything, I would create these thoughts that made it about me. I remember somebody complaining about the master schedule, which really like we had a whole team of staff create and our our schedules, even at the elementary level, are really complicated these days, complex and can be really choppy. And they were just complaining about the schedule, but I made it all about me. They're mad at me. They think I'm a bad administrator. I can't even make a schedule. Yeah, there are a number of uh, thinking traps that we can fall into. And one of those is definitely personalization, which right. is where whatever is said to us, we make it about us. And right. if we can see, okay, I've got that tendency to do that. Perhaps it's not about me. Then we can diffuse from that thought a little bit and then hopefully see that there might be some other possibilities. Right, right. So now the the next definition is actually CBTI or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. And can you explain a bit about that? Yeah, so CBTI is really cognitive behavioral therapy, but it also utilizes uh, individualized treatments for insomnia. So there's a number of things that have been shown to be pretty helpful as individual strategies, but what they've also found is that some strategies work for some people, whereas other people might prefer a different strategy. So by combining standard CBT with these individualized treatments that work for insomnia, then it's trying to make sure that we can help the most amount of people that we can. Right. And so is there, can you define insomnia? I mean, is it simply just struggles with sleep? 
yes, it, it depends which context you're in. Uh, if it's just uh, in a clinical level, so you go see a psychologist or you go see a doctor, uh, they'll just say, you know, have you been having difficulties with falling asleep or staying asleep? most nights of the week for, say, the past month or the past three months. If it's in a research context, they want to look for at least half an hour average with trying to fall asleep or at least half an hour awake during the night on most nights. Wow, just awake for a half hour would would constitute insomnia. Yeah, as an average. So if you're awake for half an hour one night trying to get to sleep, that doesn't mean you have insomnia. But if it's consistently like that across a period of, say, one month, then you would qualify for a diagnosis of insomnia in a research study. Right. Now, I know that uh, with my major depression, I had had incredibly difficult issues with sleep. Um, And I it was really pretty wild to me. Like I wanted to isolate my bedroom became like my safety zone where I wouldn't have to see anybody, but I would make an excuse and tell my wife like, okay, Hey, my psychologist said it's like a brain injury and I need to sleep. So I'm going to go upstairs and I'm just going to nap. And I would lie in bed literally for like three hours rolling around, not being able to sleep at all. But I would, um, feel again like that's the one place nobody will see me. I don't have to engage with anybody. I don't have to explain myself away. Um, But I just couldn't sleep. And at night, I I literally feared my bed. Um, I remember like walking to the bathroom, which is near my bed and past my bed, even in the day thinking like, oh, I'm going to have to lie down in that bed tonight. And I know I'm just going to roll around all night. It was, mm-hmm. it was miserable. And I think that's a, a fairly common, from what I hear, part of depression is that the challenge with sleeping. Yeah, definitely. For depression, one of the symptoms of it is insomnia or hypersomnia. So either not being able to sleep or wanting to sleep too much. Uh, and what we found is that people with depression, they do have a tendency to isolate themselves a bit more than what is helpful for them. And they probably spend a little bit too much time in bed. And is there a known relationship between not being able to sleep causing the depression or the depression causing the lack of sleep? Uh, I think it can be both ways. In one of the research studies, I think it was Perlis and colleagues, they found that insomnia was the primary symptom, I think. So if people were really not sleeping well after they'd improved their depression, then they were at the greatest chance of having a relapse. Right, right. And so I think they call that bi-directional. One can cause the other and and it's equally the same, essentially? Uh, Yeah, I'm not sure if it's equally the same. I'd say sometimes sleep can come before depression on a a bit more of a regular basis. But there can also be cases of depression where they don't have insomnia or where somebody's not feeling great and they spend more time in bed and as a result they start not sleeping well. Right, right. I think... In my case, and from what I've heard with many men with depression, I just had, you know, kind of racing thoughts and, and I believe I had the depression before the sleep challenges. I also know that when I ended up uh, with my second bout of major depression, checking myself into a partial hospitalization program, and I would say the very first thing the doctor wanted to get a handle on was my sleep before even addressing anything else. 
Does that sound mm-hmm. pretty typical when you see a, a client who has depression and insomnia? I wish it was more typical. I think if doctors and if psychologists did try to address the sleep, then that could help alleviate some of the depression symptoms. Uh, I think often people just see insomnia as a symptom of depression and they think that if I give somebody an antidepressant or if I treat their depression, their insomnia might go away. But if the sleep has been an issue for, say, three months, then it's it's pretty unlikely that just if you treat the depression that they're going to start to sleep better as well. So they both do need to be addressed sometimes. Right. And is it, you know, so for in my case, the doctor went straight to medication, um, put me on meds that would help me sleep. In fact, I told him that my a different psychiatrist before I checked myself into the partial hospitalization program had put me on trazodone and I told him, which is used off label. It's actually an antidepressant, I believe, that the doctors mo- most frequently here in the U.S. oftentimes go to for sleep um, as a sleep medication. But I told him that I had been on trazodone, but it would take me a long time to fall asleep. But then once I was asleep, I was fine. Um, so that psychiatrist ended up giving me a, the one at the partial hospitalization program added a prescription antihistamine which he felt would kind of tire me right away and allow me to fall asleep, and the trazodone would keep me asleep. I'm wondering what you think about sleep medication as a means for improving one's sleep. Uh, I think the problem with sleep medication is often it doesn't produce a very natural sleep. So if I've taken an antihistamine because I sometimes get allergies, then I might spend maybe nine hours in bed. I just feel exhausted on it and I sleep what feels like okay, but I'm still quite tired the next day. Whereas if I had eight hours of natural sleep, then hopefully I would feel quite energetic the next day. So I think medication has some benefit in the short term, say under four weeks. If somebody's in a really stressful situation, it helps them to calm down, it helps them to get to sleep and to get through that period. Uh, But I don't think it's a great long-term strategy. So as soon as it's more than a month, then I would try to do CBTI uh, as opposed to any sleep medication. Right, right. And it's interesting. In my case, I think uh, I was definitely over-medicated, and I I did not realize it at the time because my wife allowed me to sleep through anything that would wake us up. I had two crying newborns, uh, four kids. They were my two youngest. Wow. And if, if they would cry, she would just wake up and get them and, and so forth. So I would be able to stay in bed. Once I exited the partial hospitalization program and I was still on those medications, I think my wife had been done with me and was like, now you can get up for the crying baby. And uh, I got up and I fainted. Um, and that happened to me a couple of the, the first night that it happened to me. I fainted three times uh, just trying to get back to bed. And I called the doctor and my psychiatrist from the partial hospitalization program said, you know, you were on the meds for three weeks. It it shouldn't be the medications. But I had explained to him that I hadn't gotten up in the middle of the night until that point. And the next time it happened, as directed, I went to the ER and that emergency doctor said that that is the most common side effect they see from trazodone is people fainting. Oh, wow. So that was that was kind of a crazy experience for me with medications. Now, I'm not telling somebody to not take trazodone. That just was my case. And I, like I said, I think I was over medicated. 
but uh, definitely have that conversation with your doctor if anybody is considering medications. And I appreciate what you're saying short term. Like I really needed something. I mean, I was not sleeping at all and it definitely helped me. And I, based on what happened to me, I, I got off quickly after that incident. So what about, uh, you mentioned different strategies that are individualized for CBTI, for the therapy. How does a therapist decide which strategies are needed? And can you share with us some of the more common strategies? Yeah, I think the great part about CBTI is that it does try to introduce most of these strategies. Uh, the, the one that's not introduced too often is paradoxical intention. This is getting somebody who's trying too hard to fall asleep to go to bed, turn the light off, and then to try to stay awake as long as they can. So not do anything to rouse themselves, but say just a little bit longer. And then if they're succeeding by staying awake, sometimes that takes the pressure off and then people fall asleep and they tend to have a better night's sleep once they are asleep. The other strategies would be stimulus control, which is only using the bed or bedroom for sleep and sex, uh, trying to go to bed when you feel sleepy, and then trying to get up at the same time each day and trying not to nap during the day. So if you can do that, uh, that's got a lot of evidence behind it as an individual strategy. Another one would be sleep restriction, which is really only spending the amount of time in bed that you need for sleep. So if you've been sleeping on average, say, six hours a week, uh, sorry, six hours a night over the last few weeks, then try to only be in bed for six and a half hours a night. And then if you do that, what it does is it increases your sleep pressure or need for sleep, and then it can help reset some of those bad habits you might have with lying awake for a long time in bed. Right. What about, I, I have often heard, like, if you are rolling around in bed or it's difficult to fall asleep, you should get out of bed and do something such as reading. Uh, yeah, that's another strategy in stimulus control. I'm not sure if I mentioned that, but it, if you have been awake for, say, what feels about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, the idea is you're meant to not look at the clock, but if you know that sleep isn't close, to get up, to do something relaxing, which might be reading, might be meditating, you know, something in dim light that isn't active. And then once you feel sleepy, to go back to bed. Right. So some of this sounds really similar to what I've read and heard about uh, with sleep hygiene. Is there a connection there? Is some of it the same? Do they overlap? Or how do you utilize sleep hygiene strategies? Yeah, sleep hygiene is an interesting one. Uh, if you ask people what are the standard rules in sleep hygiene, you'll probably get quite different answers from different people. And this is part of the problem with it. It might have, say, 15, 17 different steps that people are meant to follow. And some of those things are quite effective or important for an individual and then others might actually make their sleep worse or make them worry worry more uh, so sleep hygiene something i'll introduce in the first session is a bit of a psychoeducation. but really what i'd want is for people to focus on the things that are impacting their sleep and then to maybe disregard some of the things that don't have as big a deal so you know if people worry about the light on their computer it's probably the worry rather than the light that's keeping them awake oh right that's a really good example you just mentioned psychoeducational, and I, I had read that CBTI is comprised of, they break down the interventions into three different areas, the cognitive, the behavioral, and the psychoeducational. And I think you've touched on each of those, but can you just explain each piece of those? Yeah, sure. So psychoeducational is really just trying to provide people 
with some education around psychology, around the relationship between thoughts, feelings, behaviours, uh, and also for CBTI, you do some education around sleep. So you talk about maybe the different stages of sleep, you talk about sleep pressure, circadian rhythms, and then you help people to you know, come up with one or two little things that they could do if that seems to be an issue for them. So for circadian rhythms, it might be uh, you know, going to bed and getting up at a similar time each day, trying to maximize uh, sunlight in the mornings and minimize light before bed. For sleep pressure, it's trying to make sure that you're out of bed for a long enough period of time. And then for hyperarousal, it's really making sure that you have a semi-regular wind-down routine or something that you can do to switch off for the day and get ready for bed. Now, the other components are cognitive. Um, that's really looking at your thinking. That's probably something that we do in CBTI, not straight away. So we try to get some improvements first through behavioral interventions. And then we look at, okay, you're sleeping a bit better. Let's see if we can challenge some of these beliefs. What type of beliefs might you be challenging? Uh, there's one, one questionnaire called the Dysfunctional Beliefs About Sleep, or DBAS. Uh, so it goes into, I think, 16 of the most common insomnia beliefs. And some of those might be that you know a person needs to have at least eight hours of sleep to function well the next day. And what we've found is you know maybe someone with insomnia is a, a bit of a shorter sleeper and they might sleep six and a half hours and feel fine. Or they might worry that... If they don't sleep well on one night, that they're going to be absolutely horrible the next day, and that's going to wreck their sleep the rest of the week. So a lot of catastrophizing type thoughts about the consequences of what one bad night or one night that's less than eight hours will have on how they feel the next day or the next week. Right. It also makes me think of how awful of a feeling I would get looking at my bed and anticipating rolling around in bed. Is that one of the the thoughts that I would would have been working on with the therapist had I been doing CBTI? Yeah, definitely. With, with CBTI, we do try to individualize it. So if somebody has specific thoughts that are really distressing them or making it hard for them to go to bed and to, to sleep well, then absolutely we'll try to address those. Right. So in the third session of my intervention, we did the CBT model. And that would be when you'd say, okay, well, what's a recent time when you haven't slept well? And what was running through your head at that time? And then let's see if we can challenge that a bit. Is it helpful? Uh, is it true? Is there a more helpful or more, help, or more realistic way to think about it? And then hopefully if that person can start to rehearse the new thoughts, then it might reduce some of their distress and lead to better sleep. Right, right. So can you tell us if, uh, if somebody is struggling with sleep and uh, maybe they're dealing with depression as well, or maybe it is just sleep. If they decide to see a therapist, and, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it is typically a therapist who who would give CBTI to a client. Uh, in America, you've got behavioral sleep medicine specialists as well. Okay. And they have people that are specifically qualified to help with that. Uh, but you could also see a psychologist who says that they do CBTI. Okay. And if they've had some training in that, then they should be pretty good. Right. And what can one expect if they go to a therapist for CBTI? I would say it's a little bit more structured than maybe the therapy that you would think about on a TV show or a movie. It would be a, a set number of sessions where you go through, you perhaps fill in a sleep diary where you record how your sleep is each night, and then you go through different exercises. So first session we did was psychoeducation, uh, second was behavioral strategies, third was cognitive, and then fourth was troubleshooting and mindfulness. 
And you're talking about for the research study that you had done. Yes, that was what we did for that. Uh, After that, I worked at Melbourne Sleep Disorder Center, and I tried to implement that treatment fairly closely. So sometimes I would do a little bit less in terms of sessions or sometimes more. But yeah, we would try to make sure that we cover those main components. So is four sessions pretty typical for CBTI? There was a researcher, Jack Edinger uh, is his name, and he looked at how much CBTI you should give to someone as well as how frequently. And what he found is that four sessions once every two weeks was actually the most effective in the in the study that he did. So he compared that to, I think it was once a week for four weeks, once a week for eight weeks, or uh, maybe shorter, one or two sessions. And what he found was, yeah, four every two weeks was the most effective. Okay. And so that's what you try to stick with. That was why we followed that. And that was the rationale we used. Right. And can you tell us a bit more about that study? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it was a, a doctoral project. So we did a randomized control trial at Monash. Uh, and that was, yeah, one, one, oh, sorry, four sessions once every two weeks. And what we did is we recruited 41 people for that. So 20 were in the control group that just got education. And then 20 were in the, 21 were in the treatment group and they got four sessions of CBTI. Uh, and in terms of depression severity, so the treatment group went from 26.62 on BDI, which is moderate severity. And then at the end of treatment, they were down to 8.29. So that's under the cutoff of 14 for depression. So they went from moderate severity of depression to no depression at the end. To no depression. That was how many of the clients? Uh, so that was the treatment group average. The okay. control group, they went from 28 down to 21. So they improved a little bit by getting some information about it, but they were still in the moderate severity at the end of treatment. Okay. But those that received the CBTI actually, on average, you're saying, had no depression at the end of four sessions? That's correct. Yeah. So their insomnia was uh, went from 18.95 to 7.81. So their insomnia also went from about a moderate severity down to no. Uh, and their depression went from moderate severity down to no depression. Wow, that is pretty incredible. And are there studies showing the same results that have larger numbers of, of uh, researchees? Uh, yeah, I'd say there, there are some. I, I haven't done too much research on it since then, so there probably have been some follow-up studies with larger numbers. I know before ours there was one where they did medication for both depression and insomnia, uh, and they did find uh, quite big improvements in both. I, I guess the difference with ours is we recruited people that had been given antidepressants, uh, and they still hadn't improved as much as they wanted to with their depression. Right. One of the reasons that I'm trying to meet with researchers like yourself for strategies outside of antidepressants is because it just, it it seems like antidepressant research is kind of at a halt and, and the antidepressants are so challenging for people who are dealing with depression, you know, to take an antidepressant, uh, and wait, you know, four to six weeks to see if it's going to do you much good and then to have to try another one and have to try another one until you figure out what really works is it just seems like we're so far behind in in medications around depression compared to other areas of health and uh, so I'm really interested in finding out about these other strategies 
Yeah, it's so tricky for mental health. I, I think if you look at why somebody has depression, there might be a number of different reasons for it. And so if one of those was purely physiological in that everything in their life is fine, but they were just feeling depressed, then perhaps medication might be the, the right solution because they're already doing things that you would think are the right thing. But for other people with depression, there, there might be very clear things in terms of their thinking or in terms of their behavior that are perpetuating or making their depression uh, not so great. And so if you can address those, maybe alongside depression, sorry, alongside medication, if it's severe or if it's moderate, then you're probably going to get better results than just therapy or just medication by itself. Right. So you mentioned essentially kind of two different types of depression, right? One that is feels more kind of chemically based because everything seems fine and they can't figure out a reason or something where there's an outside factor. Maybe their job is miserable or their family life or their marriage is really troubling them. And if they can work on that alongside of medications, you're saying there could be improvement. I'm wondering if you think, are there even more variations of depression and and why depression manifests that, that you believe exist? Yeah, I'd say they fall under those two main categories, but then under each of those categories, there's a lot of different variations. So if somebody has bipolar, then a lot of that will be biological, and they'll have periods where they feel really good and really talkative and wanting to do a lot of things, and then they'll crash and they'll have times where they feel really down. Uh, so if somebody does have bipolar, if somebody does have schizophrenia or severe depression, then I think medication is really important. Uh, but if it's just, you know, there are certain things in their life that aren't going so well or they're really critical of themselves, then it may be that therapy is going to be much better. Uh, for sleep, I think, you know, the main reason why someone's feeling really down is because they're exhausted because they can't get any sleep. Then using CBTI to address that first is going to be hopefully really important and could lead to them not having depression anymore. Right. You think one can el eliminate depression completely simply through CBTI? Uh, well, if you look at our, our, our results at post-treatment and also three-month follow-up, the average score in the control group was under that cutoff of 14 on the Beck Depression Inventory. So you look at each person and most of them didn't have a score of zero, which means they still had some symptoms of depression, right. but they'd, they'd improve their depression severity a lot. So I don't think it's going to improve it forever. But if people are doing the right things on a regular basis in terms of their sleep and their sleep was what was contributing mainly to their depression, then it could, could result in them not having that even two or three years later, which some studies have found. Right. Are you able to speak to the fact, like just how important sleep is to one's, to one's livelihood and just how detrimental things can get with the lack of sleep. Yeah. I think it's one of the three main pillars of health. We've got sleep, we've got nutrition and we've got exercise. So I think if we're, you know, exercising enough and if we're eating well and we're not sleeping at all, then it's still going to be hard to, to live a pretty happy and a pretty healthy life. So I do think it's one of the three main pillars that we want to try to address. Uh, and if all three are working well, then hopefully we're going to be feeling a lot better and able to do more during the day. If you're not sleeping at all, then, you know, there are some studies that show even within a week that a lot of your cognitive and physical functioning drops down. Uh, if we look at the long-term 
effects. It's probably the you know greater chance of having an accident, greater risk of depression, and probably more strain on the body as well. So you might gain weight or you might just uh, have certain health consequences in the long term if you're not getting that solid sleep. There's one study that found that this is across six years, and they saw that if you were sleeping five hours or above, then you were pretty good. But if you were sleeping, say, under three hours a night, then it really did come with some greater risk of long-term injury or death. Right, right. And what about, uh, you know, you spoke about how it can impact cognition. Uh, do you, is there a point where, I don't even know how to ask this. Like, I mean, for me, I think I was sleeping probably 10 hours for a week, um, you know, 10 hours a week for a few weeks. And, and I started wondering sometimes I couldn't even inner figure out like were some, I was certainly cognitively impaired, like greatly at times I believed. Um, I, I literally, I was driving my daughter to a, um, to a carpool that I had driven to our neighbor's house several times. And it was literally like two turns and about four blocks from my house. And I got lost and spun around and had to pull over and pull out my maps on my phone to figure out how to get to the house that I had been to several times. And like I said, it was two turns. But for me, it, it became really unclear, like, wow, is, is some of this that's going on with my brain just the lack of sleep because I'm not sleeping at all? Or is it the depression? Because I think depression can actually impact cognition as well. Yeah, definitely. And, and I would say it's, it would probably have been a combination of both uh, but we know from lab studies where you know you restrict someone to say two hours a night of sleep opportunity that their performance does drop very quickly and, and probably at fast at twice the rate of somebody who gets four hours of sleep opportunity so it's something that if you're not sleeping at all within 24 to 48 hours you're going to start to notice that you can't perform or think as clearly as you'd like to and right. if you're sleeping, say 10 hours a week then definitely across a week you, get, you, you would start to notice those differences. Right, right. Yeah, it was awful. Do you think lack of sleep can actually create a psychosis? Uh, perhaps. I mean, there are some studies, I, I wish I could remember the name, but basically they put headphones on people and they blindfolded them and they got them to just lie there. And within 48 hours, people could develop psychosis. So we are, we're, with creatures or where people that need to have some type of outside stimulus and interaction uh, to keep our mind going really well. So if we just isolate ourselves fully, then we do put ourselves at a higher risk of psychosis. And if you're not sleeping at all, then your brain's definitely not going to be working as well. Um, there's not too many studies I've looked at that have found that somebody's developed psychosis because they weren't sleeping well, but obviously it would potentially lead to hallucinations if you weren't getting enough sleep at all. Right, right. I know earlier you had mentioned circadian rhythms. Can you talk a little bit more about circadian rhythms, the importance of them, and how much one can impact their own rhythms? Yeah. Circadian is Latin term, which means about a day. So humans have these circadian rhythms throughout, throughout our body, and we've got a lot of things that act on about a 24-hour cycle. So we tend to feel hungry at similar times each day. We tend to uh, be more alert or more sleepy at different times. Uh, 
So probably the most dangerous time relative to how many people are on the road is 3 to 6 a.m. And that's because for most people, our brain wants us to try to sleep. So if we want to improve our circadian rhythms, uh, definitely you know, going to bed at a similar time, getting up at a similar time is great. And then the last thing is really about light exposure. So if we get light exposure in the morning, what it does is it switches off our melatonin, tells us it's daytime and now it's the time to be active and, and do things that we want to do. And then at nighttime, if we minimize how much we're on computers or TV or anything that's too bright, uh, then it's also going to start our melatonin and then signal to our brain that it's time for sleep and it's going to be easier to get to sleep and then to have a better quality of sleep. Right, right. I, I have heard that... Uh those who work night shifts can really their health can really be impacted because of the challenges of sleeping which is like flipping the circadian rhythm completely yeah if your natural circadian rhythm is saying sleep between 11 p.m and 7 a.m and then you have to work night shift and you're working while that time that your body wants you to sleep the whole time then what it does is it throws out that circadian rhythm it's either going to make it less strong or it just means that you're trying to do all these things when your body wants you to sleep. And what that means is then when you're trying to sleep and your body's trying to keep you awake, it's going to make it a lot harder to. So it's harder to function when you're meant to be working, and it's also harder to sleep when you want to be sleeping. And over time, does that readjust then so that the, the waking time that your body wants does become that evening time and vice versa? We can shift it a little bit. I think it's a little bit easier to delay our body clock, so to go to bed a bit later than what we'd usually like to rather than to go to bed earlier. Um, but because it reacts to light so much, I, I think if you're trying to work at nighttime but then you're out during the day, you know, the body keeps wanting to push back to what feels more like a natural cycle. So it is hard to do it. We can do it if we're really careful and really particular about when we get light, uh, but it's going to be a lot tougher to keep it at that rhythm that's not quite natural to us right right a uh, a question just came to my mind uh, that my brother who uh, is a family doctor and he lives in england he would probably be so upset if i didn't ask you do you have recommendations for time change like uh to deal with jet lag are, are there recommendations for sleep for ones uh, who yeah. travel internationally Definitely. Yeah. It, international travel isn't as much of an issue at the moment with the pandemic. Right. Uh, but there's a few apps that are, are pretty good at being able to help people. So they tell you what time and how much light exposure you should get. Uh, one was called Jetlag Genie. Another one was Jetlag Rooster. Um, but if we're thinking, you know, at, at its most, most basic level, uh, to try to get as much light exposure as you can during the day when you arrive and then also try to go to bed at a reasonable night time for that. So if I'm traveling from Australia to America, uh, you know, I'll leave at maybe 11 o'clock and I'll arrive at 11 a.m. And then even though my brain might tell me, oh, it's nighttime in Australia, go to bed now, the aim would be to stay up, try to stay up till about 9 o'clock, and then try to go to bed at that time. So if I get a lot of light exposure in the morning and then try to minimize it at night, then my body's going to reset to that new environment as soon as it can. And that, I mean, that is essentially trying to change and modify that circadian rhythm again, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And it can do it by about two hours backwards or delaying it. Uh, and you can only advance it by about an hour a night. Okay. All right. Awesome. 
Well, this has been incredible. What, uh, you know, so if, if there's somebody out there who is really struggling right now with sleep, um, depression, can you just give, I know you talked about a, a lot of different uh, avenues to help one improve their sleep, but if, if, you know, maybe they're even waiting to get into a psychologist uh, to talk about CBTI, but in the meantime, could you give like just one or two of your highest uh, suggestions for somebody who's struggling sleeping? Yeah, sure. I, I do think for people with insomnia, so people that have had difficulty with falling asleep for a while, probably one of the most important things is trying not to spend too much time in bed. So if you need, say, seven and a half hours of sleep, then don't spend any more than eight hours in bed each night. And then if you do that and try to keep that semi-regular, so get up at a similar time each day, and that's really going to help with both your pressure and also with your circadian rhythms. And then I think the third factor is trying to have a regular wind-down routine if you can. So try not to work right up to bedtime and then go to bed and expect to fall asleep straight away. But a few hours before, just say, okay, my work is done for the day. What can I do to try to quieten my mind or to relax my body so that once I'm feeling sleepy, I can go to bed and hopefully not take too long to fall asleep. And you mentioned a few hours before bed. Are you talking about that long of a wind down? Uh, it doesn't have to be two hours, but we know that for circadian rhythms that if we can minimize how much light we're exposed to for about two hours before we fall asleep, then that's probably going to give us the best results. I know that'll be hard for some people, but you know, if you can do one hour, that's good. Uh, ideally, you know, two hours is probably the most that you would need to do, but even 10 minutes is going to be better than nothing. Right, right. And that makes me think of something. I'm I'm wondering if this is a, an old wives' tale or if there's any truth to it. I once uh, read that you should be able to sleep to the point where you are not waking up with an alarm clock, or that is telling you that you're not getting enough sleep that your body needs. That's tough. Uh, <laughs> I'd say. In, in an ideal world, that would be great. So if you have endless amounts of opportunity to spend in bed, uh, then by doing it that way, you're going to find what is the right amount of time for you. But I, I think sometimes, you know, parents need to get up to take their children to school or to go to work or things like that. So just because you're using an alarm to get up, that doesn't mean that you're doing the wrong thing. I think if anything, it can mean that your sleep is more regular from night to night. So right. it might be that you're really tired and you sleep 10 hours in one night, but then your pressure is very low, so you may be in the sleep five the next night. I think having that eight hours in bed each night and waking up with an alarm is probably better over the long run. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I hear you saying that the alarm clock will give you that consistency of always waking at the same time, which could be more beneficial than sleeping in. Um, I think so. Days. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Well, Dr. Ashworth, if, if any of our listeners want to reach out to you, what would be the best way for them to get in touch with you or if they wanted to learn more about you? <laughs> yeah, I have a website, uh, damonashworthpsychology.com. So people can contact me through that, or they can also send me an email if they'd like. Uh, my email is damon.ashworth at gmail.com. So if it's about psychology or sleep, I'm always happy to answer it. Um, if somebody does need uh, to see a therapist, then, you know, there might be a search engine in America. I know in Australia, it's a uh, find a psychologist on the APS website, and that can link you in with someone in your area who hopefully can treat sleep or depression if that's an issue for you. Right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ashworth. I want to thank you for your time 
and your expertise. Uh, this has been incredible information, and uh, I really appreciate your time. Not a problem. Thanks for having me on. All right. Fantastic. Well, make sure you stay healthy. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.